All right. We are going through the Ten Commandments. We happen to be on commandment number 10. And I wondered uh, if you noticed something that I noticed as we have been going through this. And that is how these commandments, a lot of people would want you to think, yep, this is just God trying to spoil your fun. But have you really noticed how loving these commandments are and how they are, they are designed to make your life richer in your relationship with him? And, and they're, they're just so beautiful. Uh, I have preached the Ten Commandments before, but that stuck out to me in a very profound way. That it's not like God's shaking his finger saying, you better do this, but rather it's God's holding out his hand and saying, I think I know that if you will live this way, your life will be a better life and uh, you will be pleased and he will be glorified. And uh, it's just really been a good exercise for me. We're going to look at Exodus 20, verse 17. I'm going to have it on the screen for you. Uh, if you happen to have the Version Bible app on your phone, you can open that up and go to the menu and you can find a live event near you. And our live event should be right at the top of the list uh, on your phone there. So when I was a kid... Um, and we would be driving down the road, my mom and dad and I. I was the youngest of four children. They were pretty much already gone, so mom and dad and I were kind of the three musketeers. I can remember sitting in the back seat of the car, and I would hear a conversation between my dad and my mom that went like this. Dad would say, um, and my dad loved boats. He had, he had a boat, he had a couple boats, and he loved boats. He'd be driving down the road, and he'd look over in that guy's yard, right beside his garage, he'd say, Oh, Mary, I wish I had that guy's boat. And my mom, and this happened regularly with them, my mom would reply, Glenn, that's coveting. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's boat. So don't say, I really want that guy's boat. Say this instead, I really want a boat just like that guy's. (laughs) What do you think of mom's perspective? Did she change it sufficiently? Did she solve the coveting conundrum, so to speak? Well, yes and no. In her words, what she was saying was that you need to remove this part of your thinking that wants to deprive someone of something else so you can have it. So yeah, she got her that, that, but coveting goes a lot deeper than that. And in my mom's defense, she knew that. I feel sure she knew that. She knew that coveting is a matter of the heart. It's the last of the Ten Commandments. It reads this way. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Coveting. Hmm. What is it? How would you describe coveting to someone else? It may surprise you to realize that coveting is something that can be good, or it can be bad. I always think of coveting as a bad thing. But you know, when the Apostle Paul is talking to Christians in a city called Corinth, he's talking to them about spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit of God gives to them. And he says this sentence in chapter 12, verse 31. He says, now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you a more excellent way. And and then he goes on to write what we call the love chapter of the Bible. But think of that phrase, eagerly desire the greater gifts. That word desire could just as easily and is often translated as covet. Covet the greater gifts. So covet can be used to describe 
a legitimate and rightful desire. I covet my wife's attention, and rightfully so. I covet my children's respect, and rightfully so. I covet a home to keep me warm and dry, and my family warm and dry, and rightfully so. Covet is not a bad word. However, coveting can be bad to do. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus is speaking, and listen to what Luke says in the English Standard Bible. He writes, and he said to them, take care, this is Jesus speaking, and be on your guard against covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. The New International Version, which is a more popular version of Scripture, speaks of this, and it uses the word greed instead of covetousness. Because Jesus is telling you, guard against greed. Guard against covetousness. Now, this might lead us to realize that coveting has something to do with an object, but it's even deeper than what it is that you're desiring. Coveting is really a very deep concept. It is not just a matter of looking at a boat along the highway and wishing you had that boat. It's a matter of a hunger that has gone wrong or a desire that is misdirected. It is an out-of-bounds intensity toward something and a lack of regard, a disregard for others. And coveting actually misses the point of living. Did you hear that last one? Coveting misses the point of living. And when we engage, when we entertain covetousness, we're doing it wrong. We're doing life wrong. Now, we all know that coveting is relevant. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. But I just want to say, when I began this series on the Ten Commandments, I really prayed about it. It just didn't seem like something that would be really relevant to our lives. <laughs> and man, that has come back to me at full volume in stereo, that this has been intensely relevant to our lives. And that's not because of good preaching. That's because the commandments are relevant to every era, to every person in history. The final commandment is no exception. Coveting happens in the everyday, where you live. It's relevant. You know this because of the things that are listed on that stone tablet. I I read them a moment ago in Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his donkey, his ox. Coveting is relevant because it happens right around us, right in our neighborhood. We don't have to go down to the big city of Clearfield to find coveting. You can find it right around you, even inside of you. It happens every day, and it's incredibly natural to covet. But it's not okay for you. It's common. The Apostle Paul is talking to a group of Christians in Rome. And in chapter 7, he's telling them about how you guys are all aware of your sinfulness. He's talking about the law, the Ten Commandments, and we're on number 10 this week. And he says this in chapter 7, verse 7, what shall we say? Is, it, is, is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was if it had not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And I see what God is reminding us of there is just the commonplaceness of coveting, that we all struggle with it. Even if someone didn't, 
even if no one told us it was wrong, deep down we would have a sense of it being wrong, even if we didn't have a name for it. And coveting, it seems to happen with everything and anything. I'm not coveting anyone's ox. I can say that to you. With a clear conscience, I can say to you, I have never coveted my neighbor's ox. Do you know why? He has no ox. (laughs) That's why. Because I have coveted cars, so have you, trucks, jobs, notoriety, bank accounts, retirement, houses, horses. I've even coveted the other guy's success at hunting. Taking a break from Facebook. Everybody's getting a deer but me. Yeah. It is amazing how relevant coveting is and how many things we can covet. Now, I'm going to talk to you about a lot of scripture. We already did. But two passages in particular. One of them is in Luke 12. If you want to turn in your Bible there, you can. I'm going to have it on a screen as well. And I want to say to you that coveting might be bigger than we think it is. I mean, when you look at the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. That's a pretty big deal. You shall not murder. That's a pretty big deal. But coveting, how bad can that be? It's just wanting that guy's boat, right? I think we kind of underestimate the damage that coveting does to others, to relationships, and even to ourselves. And one of the reasons is because coveting usually desires to deprive someone else of that which they have. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or his wife or his ma- whatever he has. You shall, shall not want to deprive it of him. Deprive him of it. Switch those pronouns for me. <laughs> Why? Because it belongs to him, not to you. You know, the story of my mom and dad where dad would say, I really wish I had that that boat. I told you mom was right and mom was wrong. The place she was right in a part of Glen, don't try to deprive him of the boat. That's the wrong part there. Just wish you had a boat like his. Okay, I get that. Because I know there is a dark side of human nature that when we see someone who has something nice, sometimes we become envious and jealous to the point where even if we wouldn't have that particular thing that that person has, we kind of wish they didn't have it. That envy, that jealousy, wanting them not to have it. Do you have that? Well, take this little test. When a BMW cuts you off, do you feel any different than when it's a beat-up Toyota Camry? I do. Oh, that BMW snob, look what he's doing. Oh, the poor guy in the Toyota. That one looks worse than mine. Go ahead, buddy. You're, you're fine. Yeah. Part of that is just the covetousness that lives in our hearts. What is wrong with me that I desire that he doesn't have that or that she doesn't have that? It's covetousness. Coveting is bigger than we may think it is because it usually wants to deprive another and because it is closely connected with greed. Now, earlier we read Luke 12, 15. I'm going to spend a little more time there now. In the English Standard Version, the first part of that verse where Jesus is speaking says, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness. And the NIV helps us by saying, he said to them, be on your watch and be on your guard against all kind of greed. The ESV translators are really smart. And the NIV translators are really smart. 
These guys probably send their text messages to each other in New Testament Greek. You understand? So it's not like one's wrong and one's right. It's just the emphasis that they felt the text carried with it. The point that I'm going to draw from this is that covetousness in the ESV is greed in the NIV and in my heart. It's greed. Hmm. I remember when my daughter was, I think, in junior high. I'm not sure. Maybe she was 15 years old. I don't know. I asked her, and she couldn't remember. But I can remember, I have a son who loved technology, and I love technology. I have a daughter that loved other stuff. And, and so I found myself, at one point, I just realized, I've spent a ton of money buying electronics for my son, and I've not done that for my daughter, and probably just out of guilt. I, it wasn't her birthday. It wasn't Christmas. It wasn't anything. But I bought her the very best iPod, the biggest iPod that Apple made. And some of you are looking blank. Let me just help you here. Somewhere between eight-track tapes and the iPhone, there was this thing called an iPod, right? And I bought her the best one there was. She was delighted. I mean, she was just delighted about it. She took it to school, and then she came home, and she said this to me. Dad, all my friends who have had iPods for quite a while, they suddenly hate theirs. Perfectly good iPods that they loved yesterday are now in their minds junk just because mine holds more songs than their does. Huh. Wow. Here's what I'm tempted to say. Such is, such is the greed of a 15-year-old girl. <laughs> but listen, guys. Listen, men and women. Such is the greed of humankind. Whether you're a 15-year-old girl or a 50-year-old guy, it is there. It is there. Coveting, greed, they connect with us. And it's bigger than we think. Think about this for a moment. Coveting often reveals misguided values. Jesus concludes Luke 12, 15 with the phrase, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And from there, Jesus goes on to tell a parable that we looked at a few weeks ago about the guy who had a really good season farming and his barns couldn't hold it all. So he built huge barns and he said, that'll last me forever. I'm just gonna eat, drink, and be merry. But God says to him in Luke 12, 20, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared? For yourself. Huh. Misguided values. We all know that our life is not comprised of what we own. But do you struggle like I struggle to actually live like I know that? Do we live like we know that in our heart? In a minute, we're going to look at another passage of Scripture. This one I can't put on the screen because it's rather lengthy. You can follow along with your ears, or you could turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, where I'll be reading from. The problem with these misguided values is seen in the reality that coveting can indicate a dissatisfaction with God and with his provision. Dissatisfaction with God. Let me ask you this. Have you ever prepared something for someone? Like maybe it's a meal, and I've done this. It's just so embarrassing. Maybe it's a meal that you've prepared for your family, for your husband, or for your wife for that matter. 
And, and it, you put a lot of time into it and energy to, into it, and it's a good meal. It's as good a meal as they're going to get. And they eat that meal, and then they walk into the kitchen and open the refrigerator. Ah, yeah. <laughs> People are laughing because you've seen it happen, right? I learned early in my marriage that's not a good thing to do, right? Hmm. Because that's, that communicates a sense of dissatisfaction with what I have been given, and it's insulting to the one who has provided it. So it is with God. So it is with God. It's a huge problem with coveting. If your Bibles are open to 1 Timothy 6, just kind of look at a few verses there, starting with verse 6. It says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Think about that sentence for a minute. Godliness with contentment is great gain. If you are content with what God has given you, that is to your gain. And you get more, but probably not more of what you think you get. It's something better than that. If you had a sense of godly contentment, I am content, God has given me what I need, would that not diminish your tendency to covet your neighbor's ox or his donkey or servants or his wife or her husband? It would. The very next verse, verse 7 says, for we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. It's good to feel content about what God has given you. And as you read on, you see that a contempt for that which God has given you or a discontentment, lacking contentment, it will take you places that you don't want to go. And remember, we said these commands aren't like God saying, you better not. It's like God saying, listen, I don't want you to mess up your life. Take this because there are places that you could go you don't want to go. And covetousness, well, look at verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith. That's the worst that could happen. I'm just singing to keep you awake. That's the worst that could happen. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from God and have pierced themselves with many griefs. And then God's word says, but you, man of God, he's writing to Timothy, flee from this and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and endurance and gentleness. Flee. Run away, run away. Get away from that covetousness. How do you do that? How do you break free of covetousness? What are some practical steps that you can take? I actually want to give you some biblical counsel regarding this. And I want to begin by saying, rather than being the kind of person who might be characterized by jealousy, be joyful when others are blessed. Choose to celebrate with them. In my young life, <laughs> I saw this vividly in the parking lot in front of our apartment. Laurel and I had just been married. We saved some money, maybe for about a year. And finally, we bought a used Yamaha XJ750. That's a Seika. 
That was a great bike. We had a little Yamaha RD350 that sounded like a chainsaw, and I loved that bike. But man, the guy that had this before, he cut the baffles out of it. It went so fast. And we lived in the Smoky Mountains of Georgia. We would go around those corners. I told you before, Laurel, on the back of a motorcycle, she's like a knapsack. It's just so comfy to have her back there. Going around those corners, we would take it so sharp that the the side of the bike would hit the pavement and kind of skip. That's really stupid. (laughs) Man, let's just leave that picture up there a while. (laughs) So I got that bike and pulled it in, and because it had no baffles, it was loud, and everyone in the apartments are looking out like, who is that guy? And two of the guys came out. And those guys' names were Randy and Joe. Randy had a motorcycle. Joe didn't have a motorcycle. We pulled in, and Randy comes up, and he he sees my motorcycle, and he says, that just ticks me off. That is such a nice bike, man. That makes me feel like mine's junk. I can't believe you got that. Now, I think somewhere in his mind, Randy had in mind that by saying that, he was complimenting my bike, but it didn't feel that way. He didn't feel like, sorry, it didn't feel to me like he was celebrating with me. Joe was right behind him, and Joe came out. I'll never forget this. Joe came out and he said, man, I am so excited for you. I can't wait to see you and Laurel riding out of here on that. You are going to have a blast, the two of you, on that motorcycle. What a great bike. I'm so glad you have that. Who do you want to be in that story? Steve. He's the guy with the motorcycle. (laughs) Of the two... Randy and Joe, it's obvious. You want to be Joe. You want to do what God says in his words. In Romans 12, 15, it says to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. I feel like in the the past few decades, Christianity has been really good at that latter part. Mourn with those who mourn. We, we, We have learned to come near one another in times of heartache and hardship. But I feel like we kind of forgot the first part. Rejoice with those who rejoice. If you want to break free from your covetous nature, then rejoice with those who rejoice. Celebrate with them. That's the first piece of biblical counsel I would offer you. The second piece of biblical counsel I would offer you is to resist the lie that more is better. When I was 20 years old, I could eat every piece of cheesecake that you could put in front of me. I had the metabolism. I don't know what kind of metabolism, but I could put it away. Now, I get to like that fourth piece. (laughs) And I realize that more is not always better. Alka-Seltzer actually built their whole marketing model on that back in the 70s. There's Ralph. I can't believe I ate the whole thing. Some of you are saying it with me, right? And his, and his discompassionate wife is laying on the bed beside him. What's she say? You ate it, Ralph. <laughs> right? And finally, after he's moaned for a significant period of time, she says, take two Alka-Seltzer. Alka-Seltzer built their whole model on the fact that we believe a lie that more is better. It isn't. You know... <laughs> You see this in the word of God in passages like Ecclesiastes chapter 5, where it says in verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough. 
Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their home. This too is meaningless. To break free, to break free of covetousness, resist that lie that more is better. And third, in your heart, redefine what brings meaning to your life. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, according to scripture, had at least one really, really wrong perspective on what made his life meaningful. And I'll just read one verse and you'll know exactly what that wrong perspective was. It's 1 Kings 11.1 1 says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, the Hittites. Now, the two problematic words in that verse are many and foreign. The problem was that these women didn't know the God of Israel. And not knowing the God of Israel, they turned Solomon's heart away from the God of Israel. So that just two verses later, the scripture says, he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his hearts after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Asheroth, the god of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And when you read what the worship entailed of those gods, you get the word detestable. You understand that. What brought meaning to Solomon's life? The wrong thing. What brings meaning to your life? You know, the older I get, (laughs) the more I realize the answer to that question needs to be God. God himself. Because even good things, like my health, my church family, my family family, cannot be the final resting place of the meaning of my life because all of them will come and go in eternity. That is why Solomon concluded one of his more profound works with these words. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is a duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Here's the point. The meaning of life is to fear God and to follow him. Not fear him like, oh, he might beat me up, but respect him because he is God. And not follow him like, I gotta do everything just right, but follow him with your heart. Listen to his spirit and his word as it directs you on a path of life. If you want to break free from covetousness, consider the meaning of your life. Maybe redefine it. To do this, I want to kind of warn you you're going to need, need um, to do this. <laughs> I want to kind of warn you. You're going to need to invest your energy in finding your satisfaction with God because that doesn't happen automatically, nor does it happen easily. I chose that phrase carefully. Invest your energy in finding satisfaction in God because it will take energy to turn your heart away from covetousness toward God. Energy work. Lots of people have an aversion to that kind of work. Over a hundred years ago, an English author named G.K. Chesterton published a work titled, What's Wrong with the World? Wow, I think that would sell today, right? 
he wrote that, and in that, he has probably his most commonly quoted sentiment is in that book. Listen to what he says. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. That's dead on. Do you understand? It's not like people have looked at God and looked at Jesus and said, yeah, I tried that, didn't work. It's not good enough. Rather, they recognize this is going to be difficult. And it is. Is not all that has value in life expensive? If you want to break free from the covetousness, it will, it will require the kind of work we're discussing right now. The Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. There's covetousness, the greed thing, which, by the way, he says, is idolatry. Put it to death. So you will have to choose to be genuinely happy for someone where you might struggle with envy. And you'll have to speak to God about it. God, I know that it's good that he has a nice motorcycle. And I have a nice motorcycle too, but I'm jealous. Help me root out that envy from my heart and help me, God, to rejoice with those who rejoice. And he will do that. You will have to choose happiness for others over envy. And you will actually have to divorce yourself from believing the lie that more is better. And you'll need God's help in this. You'll need to talk to him. Holy Spirit, I know that more is not better. Please help me realize the emptiness that comes with the ideology that says more is better because I want to find my satisfaction in you and in you alone. You'll have to dismiss the lie. More is better. And you'll have to dig to find meaning in something better, in someone more substantial, and that someone is God himself. It is not 700 wives and 300 concubines. It is God. It is pursuing him. It is beginning a walk with him. It is getting to know him and knowing him personally. It is loving him. It is reading his word and asking his spirit to show you how it applies to your life. It is talking to him. God, I love you. And I revere you. I want to find my meaning in belonging to you, in following your commandments, and bringing joy to you. Help me, help me make that my objective in every aspect of my life. Pull me away from the shallow perspective and help me find meaning in you and you alone. You know, in this life, as humans, we always struggle. But you and I don't need to live our lives in bondage to covetousness. We can break free from those chains. I, I think my mom was joking when she said, Glenn, don't say you want his boat, that's coveting. Say you want a boat just like his. Because I know that both she and dad knew that coveting is bigger than that. I told my son this story this week. He and I were chatting. I was looking. I don't know if you know this or not, but I have a couple grandkids. <laughs> and I was chatting with Lydia, and Tim happened to be on, in the picture. And I, and I told him about that, about mom and dad and what mom always said. And 
you know, there's those moments when that child you raised, you reared, says something really profound. And my son said this. He said, yeah, you can't just switch the words around and fix a heart problem. <laughs> yeah. He gets that wisdom from his mom, right? Yeah. Really, the way you fix these kinds of problems is by taking your heart to God and hearing his heart for you. Because it's always a matter of the heart. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 13, verse 5, God says this. He says, keep your lives free from the love of money. There it is. There's the covetousness. The author goes on to say, and be content with what you have. That's kind of the opposite of being covetous. Because God has said, and by the way, think of that because. Think of how it sits in that that verse. God's saying, don't covet because I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. My heart is with you always. And when he says that his presence is with us, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, his heart is speaking to our heart. And when our heart begins to understand that, we can break free from covetousness. We can let go of the love of money. We can be content with what we have because we know the most important thing, God himself is with us. You know that he's with you because of the profound depth of his love for you. That Jesus gave himself for you so that you could be forgiven for all the times you messed up. So that you don't have to be ashamed of all the stuff that you're ashamed of. That he took that penalty lovingly, willingly, openly, voluntarily. And you don't have to turn anywhere except to him and say, thank you for doing that. I trust you. I will follow you. And that takes care of commandment number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. I want to pray that we would have this outlook toward covetousness that says, I don't have to behave that way. All I need is found in Christ. Would you stand with me as we pray? Let's bow our hearts together. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your presence with us. We are so thankful for your love for us, that you demonstrated your love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if I can't imagine having that kind of love for anyone. It's very difficult for us as mere humans to imagine you would have that love for us. But we trust that you do. And we trust, Father, that all we need can be found in you. Help us to separate ourselves from this tendency toward covetousness. Do it by the power of your spirit living in us. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.